Good morning. Let me pray for us one more time as we begin. Lord, there are opportunities in each of our lives to come to know you. And each day and each week gives us a chance to grow in our relationship with you. Pray now as we have a chance to just sit and hear the word taught and to learn for ourselves what it means to trust in you, that you'd help us to do that. We want to grow in greater faith in Christ. Lord, as we talk about idols and how to battle our idols and what it means to follow Jesus, help us to do that this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you've ever traveled overseas like I have, or particularly traveling in a country like India, you'll find something there that we don't find here in the States. On the roadside, right next to, say, a a store or even a gas station or even a home, you'll find miniature temples. You know, you're driving down the road and you find this little building And the first time I was traveling through, I was curious what it was. So we stopped and walked over. You walk in, and it's it's a little shrine. And you walk inside, it's actually a a statue of of a false god. And they're various sizes, some of them small, some of them are fairly large. But nothing larger than anything the size of your living room is a temple on the roadside. So something as simple as going to the grocery store getting your food, and on the way home, you can stop by a roadside temple, offer your worship to a false god, and then head home. It's that simple. They're all over the country, and there are actually thousands of these temples throughout the entire country, filled with thousands of idols and thousands of false gods, all of them false gods in which these people worship. Well, as unusual as that sounds to Western ears, We all have idols, things that compete for our worship of God, things that try and pull us away from worshiping God. Uh, Now, they may not be wooden or metal statues, but in our day, they're still all around us, and they dwell even in our own hearts. And unlike India, we don't have statues on the roadsides in little temples, but we have things that we each worship, things that pull at us and cause us to turn our affections away from the one true living God. The great reformer John Calvin often said, our hearts produce idols. They are idol factories. What we want to consider for our second week, 1 Kings chapter 18, and the main thing that we want to consider is the challenge that the prophet Elijah offers to us, and he does that in the form of a question. Here's the key question we're going to consider today. How long... Will you waver between the Lord and your idols? How long will you waver between the Lord and your idols? There are false gods in this world, and we spend our days worshiping idols and false things that distract us from the one true living God. And God's aim is for us to not be foolish, but to worship Him alone. So I don't know if you've ever, in school, ever had to be made to do a thesis sentence. You know, the key idea, the main idea, here it is in just two sentences. If you're going to fall asleep during the sermon, you're going to at least walk away with the key idea. So, in, in two sentences, here it is. There is one true God. 
You must follow the Lord and abandon your idols because they will fail you. There is one true God. You must follow the Lord and abandon your idols because your idols will fail you. Now, just a little background. If you weren't here with us last week, in this story that we're going to encounter, there is Ahab, the king over Israel, who marries Jezebel. Now, Jezebel comes from a land north of Israel, Sidon, um, and Jezebel brings with her her own foreign god, Baal. And the problem in, in marrying Jezebel for Ahab was he married a foreign wife who brought a foreign god, and that corrupted the worship of the Israelites, because as the king and the queen went, so also Israel began to follow Baal. The entire nation fell into false worship of this god, Baal. So, the dilemma is laid out for us in chapter 16. But then at the start of chapter 17 in 1 Kings, what you find is the Lord sends Elijah the prophet to announce a famine that will come across the country of Israel. And you ask, why a famine? Because the story has a famine throughout it, and the famine is key towards this story because this false god of Baal is the god of rain. And what better way for God to show that he's actually in charge than to take away the rain? And that brings us to chapter 18. So if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 300. If you want to turn there, page 300, and point number one, point number one is going to be choose who you will serve. Point number one, choose who you will serve. And we're going to start at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Well, this is Ahab's first encounter with Elijah after, as the text tells us in 17, three years of a famine. And did you notice the first thing that came out of Ahab's mouth? This question, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab has lived for three long years under this famine and he blamed Elijah. And yet Elijah turns it right back around and points to Ahab and he says, verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because... You've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Elijah said that Ahab was at fault for the famine because the king had done two things. And notice what he says there. First, he abandoned the commandments of the Lord. And we know the, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, the very first one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second thing he says there, the king followed the Baals. 
Ahab led the nation to follow Baal and Asherah, the false gods. Ahab was trying to blame Elijah, and yet Elijah knew who was the real troublemaker, who was the one who led the nation into this false worship. Elijah asked Ahab to gather the prophets of Baal and Asherah and all the people of Israel on Mount Carmel. Elijah turns to all of Israel, and then he offers this challenge in verse 21. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture a church on one side and an idol on the other. And this idea of someone limping, I want you to picture a man limping back and forth between the church and the idol and the church and the idol. Picture a man limping and dragging his leg and trying to go back and forth between the worship at church and then the worship of an idol. It's supposed to be a pathetic picture of a limping man struggling between two options. The Israelites were actually wavering between these two opinions. Do they follow God or do they follow Baal? And this was Elijah's challenge. Choose who you will serve. Now, I have several young children. My two oldest are here with me. I don't know if you've ever seen a young child, whether it's your own or you've served in nursery, and when you ask a child to come to you, and they don't walk to you right away, what do they do? If they don't want to come to you, they shuffle their feet, they kind of drag themselves to come to you, they don't really move quickly to you. Uh, they're limping along, if you will, and you tell them to come, and they don't obey, and it's not because they're unable to walk to you, they're perfectly capable of walking over to you, but it's that they don't want to. There's a spiritual tug of war. They're actually resisting in their own hearts of doing what you want. Well, Elijah says to the Israelites, stop wavering between the Lord God Almighty and Baal. Follow God. Stop resisting. Stop dragging your feet. Stop limping along. Come and serve the Lord. Choose who you will serve. Therein lies the challenge for the people of Israel and for us also. Who will you serve? Who will you follow? That's the challenge that God offers you today as you consider. Who are you following in your life? Is it the Lord or is it your own idols? Now we all have idols, things that compete for our worship of God. They're God substitutes, if you will. Now, you know, maybe the idol for you is something akin to success. Like you, you desire or you drive for most of your life around the idea of being successful. Or maybe there are other things that control your life. And, you know, whatever controls your life is an indicator of an idol in your own life. Maybe you struggle after lust and it wreaks havoc in your life. Or uh, maybe you're shaped by the opinions of others. And what other people say matters so much to you, you rearrange your whole life around that. Or maybe the idea, if you're single, of getting married one day. Or if you're single, maybe the freedom that you have is an idol for you. Or maybe they're material things. Comfort and security. A nice home. Uh, you know, a beautiful lawn. A nice car. Vacations. A good job. What is it for you? What do you worship? You know, if you're a teenager, maybe it's your friends' opinions, the music that you listen to, the things that you do. 
What is it? What do you worship? What pulls at you? What, what things compete for your desire for God? Now, for some of you here today, it might actually be that you're worshiping a real idol. You know, if you come from a background where you're Hindu or Buddhist, there might be a statue of a false god in your home, or it might be something that you, you run into frequently amongst your family members. And in that case, you're struggling with idolatry in the truest sense of it, actually worshiping a false god. Whatever your idol is, we've got to admit we all have them. We all have things that compete for our worship of God. And I want you to take a moment in your mind right now and think about, what are my idols? I'll just pause for a second. I want you to think about it. What are my idols? And if, if you have one that comes clear in mind, just write it down on your sheet of paper. What are those things that compete for your attention and pull you away from God? Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, thank you for coming. I appreciate that you've taken your time on Sunday to join us for worship this morning. My question for you is, what rules your life? What's most important to you? What have you built your life around? Because what you build your life around is a good indicator of things that you potentially are worshiping. Things that matter to you the most. Are the things in which you choose to build your life around satisfying you? Are the idols giving you actually what you want? You know, as Christians, we believe the only way to have ultimate satisfaction is to actually worship God, the one true God of the Bible. We understand that He sent His Son to die for us. And that is the one way to find real, true satisfaction in this life. I'd submit to you that a job, a car, a house, a nice vacation, good retirement plans will never ultimately satisfy you. None of that will ultimately satisfy you. The things that you're turning to are never meant to carry the weight and burden of your hopes. Only God can do that. God did this by sending His Son for us on dying on the cross for our sins. And if you trust Him and you follow Him only, you will learn to find a life that is much more satisfying. What makes you think that a job, material possessions financial plans, good retirement plan, retirement plans that last you for a long time, anything in your life, what makes you think those things will be ultimately satisfied? Now, if, if you're disagreeing with me on that, I'd love to talk to you at the door after the service. Just have a conversation about that. Now, the striking thing, look at verse 21. The people did not answer Elijah. It actually says they didn't say a word. The Israelites' lack of response spoke volumes. The people were wavering between the Lord God and this false god Baal. And they actually were not ready to commit. So their silence was embarrassing. You know, uh, I've gotten to officiate a couple of weddings every year. And I want you to imagine with me, you've all often been to wedding ceremonies. You know, there's usually a beautiful bride walking down the aisle and a stunning groom, well-dressed at the front. There are songs sung, prayers prayed for the couple. And then you get to that moment in the service where the pastor looks at the bride and says, Do you, Debbie, take Tom to be your husband? 
And imagine if Debbie, at that moment, didn't say anything. That would be awkward, wouldn't it? And the longer she stood there and just stared at him, it would just get more and more awkward for everybody in the room. The silence would actually be embarrassing. It would be embarrassing especially for him, but it would be awkward for everybody in the room. Well, same thing for the Israelites. Their silence was embarrassing, especially when Elijah offered this challenge. The fact that they didn't spoke up spoke volumes. It was as if they looked at God and said by their silence, I have not made up my mind. I'm not sure if I'm actually going to commit to you. I'm actually not sure if I'm going to give up my idols for you. That's what their silence said to God. And that's what their answer was to the question. Well, the God of the universe sent this prophet to call the Israelites back to himself, and yet the people were not ready to give up their false gods. That's the tragedy of this situation. They were non-committal at best. Well, are you ready? We all have idols. We all have false gods. We all have things that would compete for our worship of the one true God. Are you ready to face up to giving up your idols and turning to the one true God and worshiping Him alone? We can worship other things, and yet God says, worship me alone. Well, there's another reason why we should choose to follow God and reject our idols, and this is going to be point number two. Your idols will fail you. Point number two, your idols will fail you. And that's verses 22 to 29 of our text. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it, I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. What's happening here in these first few verses? Elijah explains to the people of Israel a sudden death competition. That's what's going on here between himself and the prophets of Baal. Elijah points out that he's outnumbered, and then he explains the preparations for the offering, that each side gets to pick a bowl and then cut it up and prepare it. And then verse 24 is key. They each get to call upon their God, and the God who answers by fire in this sudden death competition, he will be declared the real God. Only the one true God would answer by fire and prove himself to be the real God in this competition. Then look with me again at the text, starting in verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. 
And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and no one paid attention. Well, verse 25, Elijah turns to the prophets of Baal now, and he gives them the same instructions for the sudden death competition. And did you notice who he allowed to go first? He allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. In this sudden death competition, the first God who sends fire wins. Why would Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first? You know, was he being a good sportsman? Let the other prophets go first? I'll be polite to you. No, I don't think that's what it was. You know, what was going on here? He let the prophets of Baal pick their bowl first. He let them actually have a bigger team. He let them call upon their God first. Doesn't he know that actually this is a sudden death competition? The first God who answers by fire is going to be declared the real God. What's going on here? Well, you've got to ask her that question. What's going through Elijah's mind? Why does he let them go first? Well, Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first because he's confident Baal is not a god. He's not scared. He's not worried at all. He let the false prophets go first because he knew what they were going to do was going to amount to nothing. He wasn't concerned at all. And in fact, he's right. Verse 26. The prophets pick a bowl, they prepare it, they call upon Baal all morning, and the text says, there was no voice and no one answered. Elijah then resorts to holy mockery of the prophets, and then they break out in this religious frenzy. They're crying out loud, they're cutting themselves out of desperation, they're hoping that their frantic activity would provoke an answer from Baal, but the text says, verse 29, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now, notice something about the narrator. He didn't even say, Baal didn't answer. You know, the narrator doesn't even stoop himself to that low level to even acknowledge Baal's existence. He says, no one answered. No one answered because Baal is not a god. He was false He's bogus. He's a fake. Now put yourself in the position of these prophets. They had spent their whole life worshiping this false god. And in this sudden death competition in front of all the Israelites, the one moment when he needed to answer to prove himself, he failed. He didn't do a thing. And he didn't do a thing because he didn't exist. He wasn't the true god. Do you expect too much from your own idols? Here's the warning. If you build your life around a false god, your idols will fail you. Your idols will fail you. All of us have hearts that are idol factories. That means we generate idols that demand our worship. And how do you know what is an idol in your life? Well, look what happens when something that's important to you 
is actually taken away. It was interesting. In the economic downturn in 2007, they recorded that there was an extraordinary number of men who committed suicide in the first few years of the economic downturn. The Journal of British Psychiatry did a study and showed that the suicide rate among men skyrocketed over the first few years after the financial crisis. Well, what happened? Too many men worshipped their wealth. And when their idol was taken away, they didn't see their life worthy anymore. They took their life. When an idol is taken away, they saw their life as no longer worth living. Well, that, that's just one example. I could give you lots of other examples. Um, can I tell you how many parents have I encountered that have gone into a deep depression when their children have gone wayward? Or, you know, how many Christians fall apart in my office as I counsel them after they've been fired from their job? What you lose often shows what you're really worshiping. <clears throat> what about you? Now, remember the idol I asked you to get in your mind just a few moments ago. Whatever that idol is. Has it delivered for you what you want in this life? Has it given you the kind of ultimate satisfaction that you're hoping for? The only reason why we turn to idols is because they give us something. You know, we, we, we get something out of them. I worship my job because it gives me success or respect or a lot of money. Or I worship retirement because it gives me security about the future. Or I worship time off and vacation because I want comfort and rest. Your idols give you temporary satisfaction. You just think about what they offer. Comfort, security, prestige, respect, entertainment, pleasure, happiness. But in the end, does it give you lasting satisfaction? Does it amount to what you actually want out of this life? In the end, the idols will not deliver on their promises in the way that you hoped for. You know, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of actually starting to work on my very first book project. It was exciting because I was wanting to actually learn how to be an author for a couple of years. And, you know, it, it marked in my mind success in my career if I can finally get something in print. But yet, as I got through part of the process, I started to realize some of the ugliness of my own heart. I realized that a part of becoming an author was me worshiping my name being exalted. Or as my mentor would call it, it's a self-glory tactic. Something that or I worshiped wasn't so much being an author, it was worshiping myself actually being worshiped. And, you know, interestingly, the first day that an actual copy of a book that I'd authored came in the mail. And I remember going to the office and getting the copy and opening it up and flipping through it. I actually felt deep disappointment. Actually, not because of the cover, because they'd done an excellent job on the cover. Not because of anything they'd printed in it, because they'd done a really good job with the book. I actually stood there and looked at it and thought, is this really all there is? I was d disappointed. Because the, the moment of feeling good about myself evaporated like that. And that kind of emptiness that comes after you've actually achieved the success that you want poured right in. Have your idols delivered for you? Mine haven't. They left me feeling empty after I worshipped myself or worshipped the idea of an author. What about your own idols? Do you really think your idols are going to actually give you lasting satisfaction. 
Do you really think that they can give you more than what God offers you through His Son? Now, Elijah was so confident that Baal didn't exist that he resorted to holy mockery. Did you see that in verse 27? Elijah wanted to expose Baal as a fraud and a huckster. So he took the opposing prophet's God and reduced him to human terms with human limitations. So, for those of you looking for an excuse for sarcasm, this is not it. This is holy mockery. Elijah's goal is actually to disprove Baal as a god before he then goes about to show that he was worshipping the one true God, the God of Israel. Elijah lets the prophet of Baal go first because he wanted to show Israel that Baal was not a real god. And that's why Elijah did holy mockery in there in verse 27. When it comes to the worship of idols or God Almighty, talking about the difference between eternal life or death, Elijah's holy mockery is much, much more important than our trivial pursuits of sarcasm with our family and friends. He's trying to disprove a false god because he knows Israel's hearts and lives hang in the balance here. Now we've seen that our false gods will fail us. Now Elijah has thoroughly disproved Baal as a god. He's now going to turn back to Israel and do one last thing. He wants them to show and know the one true God. And that brings us to point three. Turn your hearts back to God because he's the one true God. Point three. Turn your hearts back to God because he is the one true God. And that's verses 30 to 40. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no, let no one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook and slaughtered them there. 
Well, Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Now, the neglect of this altar probably showed how far things have gone in Israel in worshiping the false god Baal. Then Elijah makes preparations for the offering, and then he has them dig a trench around the altar and pour four jars of water onto the altar three times. The people of Israel knew that wet things don't burn. So Elijah wanted to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the God who would bring down fire from heaven. And then in contrast to the prophets of Baal, whose worship of their false god was in a frenzy, Elijah offers a simple and straightforward prayer at the offering. You see his prayer. Uh, You see in his prayer why Elijah did all of this. The first thing you see there, verse 36, he wanted to show that God was the real God and that Elijah had done all this as God's servant. And then number two, you see there, verse 37, he asked God to answer him so that, and that so that indicates purpose. This is the point of it, that the people may know that the Lord is God and that God himself would turn the hearts of the Israelites back to them. Elijah wanted the Israelites to know the one true God and that their hearts would be turned back to him. Astounding, isn't it? Elijah's God is a reconciling God. He is the God who would not tolerate the Israelites wandering. No more limping between two different opinions. If the Israelites themselves would not commit, God himself would rescue them. God Himself would rescue them from their wicked ways and turn their hearts back to Him. So the same God who covered Adam and Eve with animal skins and promised a seed who would defeat Satan, and the same God who brought Joseph's family back to Him in a foreign land, and the same God who sent Moses to rescue His people in Israel from Pharaoh's death grip, and the same God who parted the seas, and the same God who brought water from a rock and manna from heaven, and the same God who brought the Israelites to the promised land, and the same God who brought Jesus to reconcile sinners back to himself, this same God would send his son to die on the cross for our sins, to reconcile hearts back to him, so that we don't have to worship false idols. There was a greater prophet named Jesus who would also call down God's judgment. And yet he himself would lay down on an altar and would be the sacrifice for that judgment so that there would not have to be any more idolatry. Our God is a reconciling God. He sent his son so that we don't have to worship false idols anymore. God teaches us and asks us, stop being foolish with your idols. Stop wavering between two different opinions. I've sent my son for you, so come, because your idols will fail you. But Christ will never fail you. Then you see there, what happens in verse 38? Fire comes down from heaven. And it not only consumes the burnt offering in the wood, but it licks up all the water in the trenches. Now, have you ever wondered, what does this fire mean? You know, little kids in children's storybook Bibles love this story. Because how often do you get fire coming down from heaven? This is not just some 
amazing 4th of July pyrotechnical story, narrative, event, where we see amazing fireworks. No, this is much more than that. Verse 28 told us, the one true God will be proved by the one who sends fire. The God who answers by fire is the one true God. That's the point of the fire. It proved that the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one true God. Now, you can't exactly do this in your evangelism during the week, can you? You know, imagine you've been witnessing to somebody at work, and then you decide you're going to prove who is the one true God. So you get up on your desk in the middle of the office area, and you say, God, answer me by sending fire and prove this pagan that you are the one true God. You might get fired from your job if you do that. It's just not going to go over well for your evangelism if you try to do that. And yet, you've got to ask the question, how does God answer us when we ask, are you real? He does answer us, doesn't He? Have you ever prayed and actually received answers for your prayers? God does that. And, you know, by His Word. He's most clearly answered us through His Word. But even more importantly, in the Word we see clearly He's answered us by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins. So right now, we don't need to call down fire from heaven because God has answered us on this side of the cross by sending Jesus to die for our sins. In verse 39, the people of Israel saw the fire from heaven and they turned back to God. They fell on their faces and declared two times, the Lord, He is God. And just like the Israelites responded, so also this message asks a response from you. God sent His Son to die on the cross for sinners. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to pay the price for us if we're willing to trust Repent of our sins and follow Him. So turn away from your idols. Turn away from the things that compete for worship of God. And turn to the one living true God, who sent His Son for you. Put down those idols and turn back to me, God says. Your idols will fail you. Now whoever you are, turn to Christ in faith. Believe in God. Believe that He sent His Son for you. Today is the day where you have a chance to do that. And then the startling ending in verse 40. Look at there. Elijah has the Israelites seize the prophets of Baal and he has them slaughtered. The prophets of Baal committed treason against the God Almighty. And so this is a picture of God's judgment against those who actually reject Him and even worse, lead others into false worship. Now this might seem drastic to us, as an ending, and yet this is a picture ultimately what will happen if we turn from God and spend our whole life worshiping idols and give ourselves over to those idols. So use this picture right now as a warning to yourself. It's a warning to all of us in this room. Not to worship those things that would distract us from God, but to turn to God and, and trust in Christ. It's a stark warning for all of us to repent of our idolatry and turn back to God and trust in His Son. So don't delay today. You know, everyone in this room has a choice today. A choice to, to turn our backs on those things that have been demanding our worship and saying, don't trust God. Don't trust Him. 
Actually, everyone in this room has a choice to say, no, I'm no longer going to waver. I'm going to trust God, follow His Son, and give my life to Him. What we should conclude. You know, last week, um, he did it yet again. Tom Brady had another stellar game. New England Patriots against Miami. For those of you who aren't football fans or don't know who I'm talking about, Tom Brady is the quarterback for the New England Patriots. And for, for fo- those of you who follow NFL and the NFL history, you'll come to know that he is probably going to be one of the best quarterbacks in all of NFL history. At the tender age of 30, Brady has won three Super Bowls and he's in the, million, in the middle of a $60 million 10-year contract. And since his days of quarterbacking in the University of Michigan, where he was known as the comeback kid, Brady was a consummate winner. Always behind in games, and yet he always found ways to pull out the game. And so he's proven himself, not just at the college level, but now at the pro level for many years. He's accomplished a lot as a football player. He has won three Super Bowls. He's led his team again into the playoffs. This year... He has lots of money, lots of attention, lots of fame, married a supermodel. He's done lots of things in his life that you expect a super quarterback to do. You'd expect Tom Brady at this point in his life, at the height of his career, with the height of all this attention, to be happy with his life and content with everything he's done. And yet, interesting, I don't know if you saw the interview in 60 Minutes with him. The interviewer asked and was surprised by Tom Brady's answer when he asked him about his life, this super successful quarterback, and Tom Brady answered, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is, I've reached my goal, my dream, my life, but I think there's gotta be something more out there for me. And the interviewer then turned to him and said, what's the answer then? And Brady just shook his head and said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. You can have all the idols you want, but in the end, they're not going to deliver. They're not going to give you the ultimate satisfaction. They didn't for Brady. He had everything he could ever have dreamed of, and yet, at the end of all of it, he was still saying, there's got to be something more than just this. Only the one true God can satisfy. And he does that through his son. Does Christ matter to you more than everything else in your life? Does Christ matter to you more than the idols in your life? If so, today, choose to follow him. Would you pray with me as we close? Lord, we acknowledge this morning that we want to grow in our love and affection for you. And yet there are so many things in this life that are pulling at us that say, don't worship God, don't worship God. And yet, Lord, we want to take this time today to say, we trust you, we love you, and we're choosing today to follow you. All those things that are in the way, Lord, remove them. All the sins that are in the way help us to repent of them and to turn to Christ and trust in Him. We pray this all in your Son's name.